All right. So first, please welcome Steve Lavelle. Good morning. Congratulations on being here on time. <laughs> yeah, these guys are always like not the there's one that's well. You, you'll find that's going to stand you well forever. And part of success is really literally just showing up, being on time. It's all yeah. you know, being showing up presently. You know, being right. dressed showing up presentably. Those kind of things. So I want to. So Steve Lavelle, we literally I think we're just my son. Uh, Zach had gone so to see Steve at um, one of the events, actually at the Biz Lab, I think, and he also came to the Boss event. Yes, that was the because yes. there were like eighty something speakers at this event that I had um, put together with um, a whole team of us put together at RPI, and um, it was eighty one speakers in one day from one stage. Most okay. difficult so, presentation I've ever had to do. Really? Well it was five minutes. Every speaker had five minutes. We didn't even have a lunch hour. It was forty five minutes for lunch because we had to get through all these speakers. And they all spoke about different aspects of their journey, very specific stuff. So Steve, um, so my son took the day off from school because he really was is interested in business and you actually didn't get to all your points, and you actually did something that I thought was very, so most of these people, you know, Steve included, practiced, rehearsed, and had it down. But when you get on stage sometimes, something happens. You start to feel the audience, and you just, they're reacting to certain things, and then you realize you can keep going in that area. That's just something that happens. But when you have a five minute talk, there's a very small wiggle room for that. So he gets to the fourth minute of his five minute presentation and said, well, I didn't get to the success part yet, but you can come and ask me later because I eventually did hit success or something, and it was so perfect. It was, it was, and my son came out and goes, "Dad, I remember his talk more than anybody else's that day." And that wasn't a criticism of the other people; it just stood out. So those you two started. Then, so, yeah. Then he saw him that when was, he came to the Biz Lab with this book called "Failing My Way to Success," and so the other day, my son is now. Um, looking at potential other possibilities at his company. Mm-hmm. And so he really wants to just, he's just a voracious reader right now and listening to podcasts, yeah. just wants to learn as much as he can. And he pulled this book off the shelf and is rereading it right now. That's Post- the most gratifying thing that anybody could tell me about. I mean, that was the whole purpose of writing the book. Yeah, yeah. So let's jump right in then. So yeah. first of all, tell me, well, let's just talk about, I'd like to ask, first of all, and you have a unique, I think, thought on what success is. Yes. So just for, because I think we all probably have our own definitions, and you guys can feel free to jump in. This is your part of the conversation. But what is success to you? To, well, success in a word is, is control over your life. And uh, that's more complex than it sounds because, especially more recently, it, it's, a, it's a, a question of discovering what's truly important to you in what you accomplish. And it can't be measured in dollars and cents. It's, it's an overall feeling of satisfaction with what you're doing, making a contribution. Do you look forward to getting up in the morning? To me, that's the biggest thing. If you can wake up in the morning looking forward to the day and what you might accomplish and what you might do, to me, that's a, a great sign of success. And it can't be measured in dollars and cents. It's, it's really about who you are, what you are. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book that I think is, is key overall is 
Uh, we call it know thyself. And you really got to understand who you are as a person. Uh, the biggest errors I've made, and there are many, in judgment and working with other people is not understanding me, my core competencies, how do I fit into the world. So even though I was uh, a founder of, well, more than one company, but um, as a founder of a company, the earliest mistakes I made and that led to big problems was thinking that I could, first of all, and should do everything. You know, how can you trust a stranger with your future? Well, the answer is uh, business is a team sport. And the most successful people are those who play it well and surround themselves with people that supplement, complement their core skills. So first and foremost, you got to look in the mirror and say, okay, what am I good at? Then, and that you should ha come up with a number of different things. Another part of that answer is what do I like to do? What really floats my boat? And then the next question is, what am I not good at? And where do I need support? And once you arrive at that, then it gives you sort of a roadmap to find other people to become members of your team. I mean, you see that that's all correct. the time. Absolutely. Well, the best companies are great teams. That's right. Well, would you say, and I have a, you gave me a lot of jumping off questions there, but one thought is just in general, would you say even when you were at their age, um, did your definition of success, has it changed over the years? Completely. So when you Absolutely, were- Absolutely, completely. It, it, Success has gone away from me and toward how I interact with other people and how together we, we accomplish something. I just was watching a documentary over the weekend and about this uh, one music artist who had, he's won six Grammys, very early success, fell into alcoholism, and he said, you know, the awards all went away. He goes, it really wasn't about, I thought that they would give me more fulfillment than they did, yeah. and in the end, they really just, went away and nothing right so, exactly um so you talk about bringing on the right team yeah so that also involves i think we've all talked about this this idea that you have to trust people you can also make bad hires so yep. you, you know you what you right. don't know but then so how do you and have you learned i guess in that way have you ever made a bad hire yes you don't need to name names <laughs> but um and then how do you learn from that and um you know are there any tips that you'd say like even in that, because you know, just so you know, this isn't just a um, theoretical class in entrepreneurship. Uh -huh. I think a good half of the class, and there are a bunch that are here today, but who are either st have already started a business or are like in oh, the midst of researching it. Like, so these are yeah, true like entrepreneurs. Hear a little more about that. Okay. If there are questions when you're absolutely when you're ready. Yeah, Chandler actually uh, has a uh, just secured a bank loan. Um, Stephen here is uh, doing a brewery, a microbrewery, correct? That's the Excellent. plan. Excellent. Uh, Dan has had multiple, right? You're in the midst of doing one right now. Uh, commercial cleaning uh, business. Commercial cleaning business. Cleaning so, business. Yeah. Uh, hair business. salon, um, Brooke. So, and I'm sorry if I'm not remembering everybody, but so there, this is not 
they're here to oh, glean as much as they can. So what did you learn in terms of how to make a good hire, not to be negative, but maybe are there some tips on here's some early, early warning signs, and then we got to get into what he does, too, because you probably want to know what is his business, actually. But maybe just while we're on that, okay. how do you know how to make a good hire? What have you learned that you would wish you had known earlier? <laughs> it, 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 it's partially funny, but uh, the best hire I ever made was my wife, Vivian, who is a... That's a good answer, by the way, So when she's listening to this. Yeah. Oh, that, I forgot about that. I forgot, Viv. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, when I said know thyself, I, I'm so emotional. I, I'm so positive about people. And in fact, the book I'm reading now by Gladwell, Talking to Strangers, is one of the most enlightening books... I could recommend in terms of how you judge other people. His and the way he tells the story is just incredible. He talks about Hitler, he talks about Amanda Knox, he talks about all of these people who have been misunderstood throughout history uh, and why do we misunderstand them. Uh, his theory is we have a predilection for thinking the very best of everybody. Mm -hmm. And I would say that is a problem that I've had. In other words, I, I, I look at you and say, okay, <clears throat> I, I, I like what you've said to me, but I am totally prejudiced in your favor. And I find everything you say says to me, oh, this is a good fit. Don't ask me why, but I, I lose my objectivity. And when I say the best hire I made was my wife Vivian is, uh, you know, she, she... Uh, Were you married the, when you... When you oh, married? yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the fact that we're still married after almost 50 years is... Congratulations. Testament to Vivian. That's awesome. Not, not anything I claim credit for, <laughs> but... Um, but the fact of, of the matter is, um, her parents were German immigrants, Holocaust survivors, and uh, because of the culture that she grew up in, uh, she's extremely objective, and she can see through all kinds of stuff. And she doesn't start with this prejudice. She starts from the perspective, politely, of, okay, who are you? What do you do? How do you fit into the rest of us? And, uh, you know. A little more discerning, maybe. A lot. Okay. A lot. So the fact of the matter is I stopped hiring people. And you let Vivian do it. And Vivian did it all. That's she, my grandmother's name, by the way. So I love that. Uh, that's so, great. To, to life, right? To I, life uh, and, yeah. and, right. Yeah, yeah. That's great. To me, uh, hiring and firing are just not... So it's knowing what not you know something that, I'm comfortable with. So put the people in charge at the things that they're really good at, right? And that you can trust. Right. And obviously, you right. can, if you can't trust your wife, who can you trust? So uh, that's great. Yeah. Um, I want to read something in the beginning of this book because I remember I had this from before, and I, I have to read this because it just gives you just a sense of who Steve is. And I think it'd be good for you to say what what your business, a little bit of your career path. If you know Rachel Ray, you've all heard of Rachel Ray. Her career path goes through Steve LaBelle. So, in all honesty, I mean, 
she's a wonderful person, but Steve helped create a platform that really, it's hard to know if her career would be what it is today if it hadn't been for Steve LaBelle. Um, this is just the introduction to his book. Because when I was in my mid-40s, at a time when peers were hitting their mid-career stride and building their fortunes, I was a stereotype of failure. I had no income, no job, no career, and it seemed at that moment no future. The worst of it was I had brought all this misfortune on myself. Against the advice of my accountant and others, I bought a business I knew nothing about and watched it dramatically and miserably fail in a mere 20 months. In that time, I borrowed hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, your wife does is a saint. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars from relatives, friends, banks, credit cards, and sank so deeply into debt that I had to look up to see the ruins. My folly forced my wife and me to declare personal bankruptcy, endangering the family's stability, destroying our security, threatening our home, and jeopardizing our children's education. That's how he starts the book. That's okay. all, and it's all totally true. So tell us a little bit about, <clears throat> so what you see is a journey, and it's wonderful, actually. But give us a little sense of what you do, and, and let's get, I don't want to cut to the chase on the success, sure. so they know. Yeah, that no, well, and then we'll get into your growing brother, up as a kid and that kind of stuff. But first of all, what do you do? So my, my life has uh, taken a path of decades, rather than, so I could look to the 70s, and uh, the 70s was the formative stage of building a food business. So, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the 80s is. In the 70s, I had uh, gone to law school, I flunked out, and <clears throat> took a job with a ca uh, company that uh, was in the retail camera business. There was a reason for that because my dad was a photographer, uh, taught me photography, but he was a wedding photographer and that was not something that I wanted to be. I was a fine art photographer, so I loved photography and I had this opportunity to go to work for a company that was going to expand from one retail store to six. We didn't know it exactly at the time, but and serendipitously, it was owned by a family that uh, my wife babysat for. Oh. So that's how, you know, my, my life has been a series of connections through relationships. And I think if I could give you any good guiding point, business, life, every aspect of what you do is based on relationships. Nobody's an island, right? We all act together with others. So uh, that was the path that I took. So the first decade of relationships was with a company called State Photo Supply. I started as a clerk in their downtown store and then they wanted to open another store. So I got involved in merchandising and setting up another store and then it was another. So I did six of those stores uh, graduated sort of to management. The challenge was it was a closely held family business. And any of you that is involved in that would understand how that works with an outsider. You're always an outsider. Well, 
in the early stages in my naivety, <coughs> I thought I could, I was an outsider who could become an insider. And it took me almost 10 years to figure out that I'll never be an insider. And that's when I opened this little cheese shop. Once again, a connection through Vivian. Uh, Vivian's, uh, again, the family was German and they had a whole bunch of friends. They lived in Queens. And one of those people went into the imported cheese business and became extremely successful. The company, uh, a cheese importer out of New Jersey. And one thing led to another, and he became interested in me. And serendipitously, another friend of mine who opened a art gallery, his first entrepreneur I knew, and the, this guy suggested that I consider opening a cheese shop. And as it turned out, they, they had a store in a brownstone in downtown Albany, and there's a little space underneath. So his suggestion was kind of selfish, but it rang a bell. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, we're having dinner, and he's, I had this idea of opening a, uh, a retail camera store photo gallery and send all the uh, framing and stuff to my friend who has the art gallery. So no, he said, uh, open a cheese store. And you would think that would just be off the charts, right? Right. Well, I knew this guy, Henry, who had this cheese importing. So I called Henry up. I said, what's, what's the story with imported cheese? And I also looked around Albany, and literally nobody was doing it. This is 1980. Nobody was doing it. And it occurred to me that what, what a good thing to do. If you can do something that nobody else is doing, why not? But the problem is I, I, I knew nothing about the cheese business except I had this guy. So he sent, I spent time with him. He sent one of his employees who had experience with retailing cheese. We had this space. One thing led to another. The rent was good. And so I rented this space. I was not going to quit my day job. Okay, let me make that clear. I thought I was <coughs> smart enough to do that. Uh, it's tough juggling, isn't it, when you have this entrepreneurial enterprise and you have the day job? Or was it hard to juggle that kind yes, of thing? Yes, very. Yeah, because my mind, you know, I was successful for this company and did a great job and was well known in the field. Yeah. Um, because my heart was in it, my brain was in it. Yeah, yeah. Once I started along this other path, I lost interest in that. Got divided. And on top of that, I was a young, arrogant person. We had just bought a new house. We had our first child. And I, I decided, uh, Vivian was a French teacher, by the way, and we decided together that one of us was going to be home and raising our kids. And Vivian wanted to be that person. So that's the path we were taking. And again, this is all 80s. Um, so uh, we opened this little shop. But like I said, 
I still have my day job, except that now I was the only one earning income in the house. And while they, in reflection, as I look at what they were paying me, they were paying me fairly. In my arrogant 20s, I felt they were underpaying me and uh, acted out in that respect, thinking I was so invaluable that, uh, yeah. you know, they would just give me more money and do whatever I wanted. Not happening. So I ended up getting fired. And I got fired at the same time that I was opening this cheese shop, which was funded in part by my father-in-law, funded in part by his friend, the cheese importer, and uh, some small savings that uh, my wife and I had. But it was all in for me, because this was it. I mean, I had no other choices. I mean, it was either go get a, a day job or open this little shop. As it happened, my sister was available, so I hired her, and the two of us opened this 400-square-foot shop, 20 by 20, in downtown Albany. And uh, So what is that in relation to this room, would you say? To a 20 by 20? Uh, half. Half this room, just to give you that perspective. Yeah, give or take. The, the good news part of the whole thing was that because we were so unique and we brought stuff in that people could not find outside of a major city, New York City in this case. Um, we did a spectacular job on this little shop. This was right out of Greenwich Village. <coughs> and the best quality of everything you could find anywhere. So we got the attention of people who appreciated that, uh, certainly the, the more well-to-do. But we also got the attention of local media. Vinod Chabra, you remember Vinny? No. Yeah, he was he was the food writer for the Times oh, Union. Okay. He sort of discovered me and wrote a lot of articles. Uh, people like Benita Zahn came in and yep. shopped. Chris Kapastashi, who's now yep. Chris Jansen, because yep. she was a big baker. And uh, so we caught the attention of a lot of people. But with all that, our first year, which was 19, April of 1980, uh, we totaled $125,000 in sales. And uh, my take on that, and, and we lost money, uh, according to the accountant, um, I made about $9,000 this year. So I went backwards in, uh, in terms of income. You're feeling kind of mixed, probably in a way, though, right? Because you got to feel really good about, you know. Oh, I felt great and, about the store. Yeah. But yet, it's not bringing in that. And we were in the wrong place. Uh, among the the photo stores that I did for this other company, I did one in Stuyvesant Plaza, which, in 1981, was a very look different looking place than it is today. It was a kind of a more traditional, tired strip center. But the owner, uh, Ed Swire, had in mind exactly what you see today if you visit. And at Cyber Center? Yeah, Cyber Center. 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 C
Yeah. Well, when I was there in the 80s, there was no TGI Fridays. Yeah, there was a Howard Johnson's, there was a Woolworth's. I think it's where the Woolworth is, yeah. I think their first one was opened up probably in the 70s, then down the street. But we were the first sort of, and, and Ed, I knew Ed Swire, the owner. I knew their property manager, Jeff File, and they actually, well, they actually wanted to uh, uh, recruit my friend John, who owned the gallery. And John was being very successful with the gallery. He had a destination location, sold high-end items. He didn't want to move. But he said to Jeff, go, go see Lobel. He's, he's struggling. And he did. One thing led to another. Uh, Ed granted me money. There was one vacant store in the plaza. Um, it's actually where the little book house was. And uh, one thing led to another. He granted me money and we built out a store there. And I asked uh, two income families, but nobody was paying attention to nutrition, the kitchen. And I said, okay, now, this was not a unique idea. I copied this from tons of research in New York City. There were already stores. But the name of your business was? The, cheese, the, the original business was called The Cheese Connection. The Cheese Connection, okay. Yeah, because Sorry. we were primarily selling imported cheese. When we moved to Stuyvesant, through connections with some great caterers and people, how much time we got? No, we're good. I just want to make sure that I want you to get, I didn't want to miss You that. lead me. No, I, keep I going. can skip right. easily. Um, you made some shifts when you were once at Stuyvesant in terms of your business model. Oh, yeah. We went to prepared foods. Okay. We actually built a kitchen in the store because it was a larger store than we really needed. And uh, with Ed's help, with the help of people like Jim Rua, who's a great local chef, uh, I learned the catering business. So the whole idea with the catering business was if... It's very hard if you're a retailer to get people to come to your location. You're going to find that out. How do you differentiate yourself? So, one that's of the a word that you I, hear a lot about, by the way, right? We, I think Lauren brought that up last last week. The differentiator. You know, what are you doing that makes you different? Why go to you? Yeah, and why you rather than somebody else who's maybe right. doing the same thing? Uh, first good goal is do something different, if you can, or another twist on it. And uh, in our case, um, we decided to go into the catering business and bring our product to the public. And in those days, a lot of people held, uh, if people were opening a business, they held a party. And uh, some parties were quite elaborate, but they wanted to show off their new offices and what they're doing. And they hired me to do these great parties. And what did we bring to the table that was different? We brought New York City, not just style, but products to Albany. And believe me, in those days, unheard of. 
It was just un nobody was doing it. But there were enough uh, transplanted New Yorkers to appreciate it. So and they're willing to pay and willing to pay. But even that was always a challenge. Really? In okay. They're willing to pay, but okay. You know, the, yeah. there was a limit, and when I would ask them, well where else can you get this? Well, I can't get it anywhere. I said, well, this is what I need to charge in order to bring this product to you here. Okay. Yeah. So that, that was an ongoing conversation. Now, your business, so I want to cut to where I came to know you, but you go kind of give us a little bit of a, you left the food business at some point. You had, you also started Peaches Cafe, didn't you? Didn't no, you? no. But you that Cowan and Lobel was my. Cowan and Lobel, okay. Yeah. So tell me about how the. Peaches was Nancy Diani. Okay. Uh, was there a connection there somehow? Why do I. We were this? close to each other, okay. but no. Okay. So Cowan and Lobel, so how. So, so I, I, well, I did the cheese connection in 2,000 square feet uh, for about eight years, from 1981 to 1988. And uh, a guy came along by the name of Dan Cowan, who had been uh, a client of mine, and he was an entrepreneur himself. He was in the information collection business and had built a very successful company collecting public data, uh, computerizing it all. He was the first to do that and selling it to large companies or law firms. and Turns out he made millions and millions of dollars, ultimately sold his business to a, a large company called Western. And uh, he was in the hunt, he was a typical entrepreneur, in the hunt for another business. And we had the same accountant. So he knew the store, he knew me, he knew my accountant, and the two of them brought us together and one thing led to another and he laid untold amounts of money in my lap. You just don't hear, you know, you hear about angel investors but these days people do due diligence. Well, what I had going is eight years of rocky road, ups and downs, ultimately a little bit profitable, no retained earnings, all, all this stuff. But he wanted to be in my business. And it turned out that the, there was a big grand union, well, 20,000 square foot grand union at Stuyvesant Plaza that was moving uptown. And I went to Ed Swire and I said, I want that space. And he threw me out of his office. <laughs> Literally, he said, "You know, he, he he forgave one year's rent to keep me in business. I mean, he just went out of his way to support me, and now I'm just starting to emerge and be successful, and I want to change again." And he said, "You're out of your mind." Well, the bottom line is with Dan's money and my enthusiasm and creativity. We finally convinced Ed to rent us half of that 20,000 square foot space. Uh, we hired a designer and we built a company called Cowan Lobel, 
which was the cheese connection on steroids. So imagine <laughs> a combination of uh, <coughs> Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, the best of the best though. And we had a full service kitchen, we had a butcher, we had a fishmonger, we had a green grocer. We had everything and prepared foods, yeah. Sorry, what was the name of the company? Cowan and Lobel, okay. which is where Rachel Ray got her start. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. But not during my tenure, unfortunately. So we built this great store for ridiculous amounts of money, and therein was the biggest challenge. My greatest weakness in those days was a lack of financial understanding. I didn't understand how money worked. You know, you put some money in front of me and I'll spend it. <laughs> I'll do a great job on spending it, but Cowan said to me, money is no object, build a world-class store, which I did. Problem is, it cost two million dollars, and in those days, yeah. 1988, <laughs> figure out the numbers, yeah. what that money, it, it was, in hindsight, totally ridiculous. But we did, in fact, build a world-class store. The challenge was it was very hard to draw any profits out of it. The overhead was out of sight. And Cowan and I started uh, fighting with each other. We had a board of directors. We were both to blame on so many levels I can't even tell you. but. It goes back to the whole idea of teamwork. Our team broke down, you know. Our marriage broke down, if you will. So by, we, we opened Cowan Lobel, closed the Cheese Connection the same day on uh, October 1st of 1988, um, to wild support and huge amount of sales. But like I said, we, we had overhead that was off the charts. Electrical bills that we never anticipated. We had 60 plus employees. Wow. We had nine middle managers. This all came from Dan wanting to have a big company. Mm -hmm. I was a fish out of water. What I was good at was all the stuff that made the store great in terms of merchandising and marketing and picking out the stuff that we were going to sell that I was a master of that okay the problem is that's not good enough you know a, a business entity is a living breathing entity did you guys when you said when you when you guys talked about opening this term did you actually sit down Put together a business plan and milestones and no, you know, no, not good. We no. were both emotional. Would that have been a good thing? It, it would have made the difference between failure and uh, a world class store, the national I, store. Yeah. The reason why I asked that is, and I told them this in the beginning of the semester. I said I'm going to bring some people in, 
And just so you know, there's going to be contradictory advice. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. So some have come in here and kind of said, yeah, I don't have a business plan. And, and it's working for them. And I think they probably have an internal mm. business plan. But in terms of they don't have a business plan, and I go, I'm going to probably always disagree with them on that. <laughs> because I still think there's something about writing it down and reviewing it and altering it. Without as, question. So Without question. Without question, especially because we weren't getting along. So there was no neutral zone. You know, it was all opinions. It was yeah. all emotions. Right. And we were both... So you could have pulled out the business. Hey, remember, well, we said we were going to do this. And Let me give you this thing. The, the biggest cause of failure in any relationship, in my mind, is failure of expectations. And to your point, we never sat down and discussed business expectations. Who was going to do what? How were we going to be organized? You know, Dan thought we hire all these middle managers. We had a, an HR director. We had a marketing manager. We had store managers. We, you know, it 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 was absurd. Um, sales were pretty good, but we could not keep up with all the overhead that was caused by these hires that we made. And to your point, lack, lack of a good sound business plan. I, I wouldn't even go near, you know, I'm an angel investor now. When, when we do due diligence, we check out the team. What is their business plan? What is their game plan? If we give you money, invest in you, what are you going to do with it? And, and when you need more money, how are you going to do it? And if you are manufacturing something, and you're successful, how are you going to scale it up? And who's going to pay for all that? Everyone know what scaling means? Can you tell us what, they, what scaling means? Scaling means this. Let's say you, you invent a widget, and it takes you years. You invent and improve and invent and improve, and finally you're ready to commercialize it. Now, but you've only been working with small quantities. You know, uh, uh, you're able to manufacture 10 or 15 or 100 at a time, but not more than that. So now you finally reach the point where you have a commercially viable product. Well, now, and a big order comes in, and you have no facilities. You may not have anybody who can make large quantities for you. I've seen this time and time again. Even if you have somebody who can make large quantities, how do you control the quality? How do you know what they're doing? Can you trust them? Do you have an alternate supply source? So the bottom line is success can lead to a failure because you become too successful. And then yeah. you can't fulfill. And the worst thing is not fulfilling what you promised to fulfill. You know, is that I what say under promise and over deliver, <clears throat> right? Is that what happened to Cohen? Well, with Cowan and Lobel, no, we, we, were, <laughs> we were able to scale because we just kept hiring people and Cowan had deep pockets. Okay. But it reached a point where he was running out of uh, 
enthusiasm. So yeah, we scaled, we did all of this, but we did it on his dime, not on profits from the company, okay? You really need to figure out how do you take this commercially viable product, figure out a way to scale it in an affordable way that gives you profits. Because a business without profits doesn't have the lifeblood to survive. And the, the biggest measure, uh, I always thought, for example, when I had the cheese connection and you know, by the time I re Cowan and I reached a deal, we were doing a little over a million dollars in sales. The cheese connection. Out of wow, twenty thousand square feet. It was wow. But I was I was working twenty four seven, literally twenty four seven. And if the night dishwasher didn't come in, I was mopping the floors and washing the dishes. Mm. And then at night, taking out catering. So it was successful to a degree, but it was far from a life. And Vivian was still home at the time until I really, you know, our kids got into elementary school. And then I begged her, she wanted to go back to teaching. I begged her to come into the business with me. And I have to say, on the success side of things, I give her credit. Stable, made good hires, made good fires, and really created the stability that allowed my creativity. So that was a good team, and we got a lot accomplished. Um, introduce a third party, and money is involved, now you're asking for all kinds of trouble. Right. And and so here's the issue. Cowan had the money. I had all the ideas, the creativity. It's a little bit of a Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak kind of thing. One's yeah, really in a way. One area, yeah. one's really good in the other area. Yeah. The, the marriage can be wonderful if it's right. complimentary. It could. It could have been incredible. Problem was, Cowan, and this is going back to the expectations, Cowan really wanted to be me, my expectations of Cowan was that he would take care of all the business stuff, all the expenses. All the Excel spreadsheets All stuff. of that stuff <laughs> and make us profitable because that's what he did with his other business. Well, I never realized he was doing this more for fun than anything. I was doing it for survival. You know, this was my dream and we achieved the pinnacle of anything I could have imagined. The problem is I did it with his money and he felt his money was more valuable than my creativity and everything that I did. So that was a great cause of tension which ultimately by 91 led to me being thrown out of my own business. Wow. Literally. Literally. And let me tell you something else about retained earnings. So I had a million dollar business going 
Your name is on the business. <laughs> well, no, this is first the oh, cheese connection. Okay. Million dollar business going and no retained earnings. But I was living a good life. Business, it was a lifestyle business. Supported our family. Paid me, well, provided me with incredible food. Paid all my travel, paid for my car, paid for this, paid probably half of the stuff. I'm sorry, come and arrest me. Probably half of it was illegal, if you really go thinking about it. In fact, one day, I was so stupid about this stuff, <coughs> one day the IRS came visiting and reminded me that I owed them $35,000 of withholding taxes. They're really nice I, about reminding you. They do a good job about that, the IRS does. I'm telling you, two guys in gray suits that were like seven feet tall and said, you have 24 hours to come up with the money or we're padlocking your doors. Now, I had a friendly banker who actually supplied working capital for us and believed in me. And uh, when I got my first, that's the other thing, timing. In 1981, you know what the prime rate of interest was? 13%, right? Even more. And effectively, I, I was able to get a $75,000 loan. I think I was paying 18 plus percent interest. Well, it's like a credit card. It's impossible. It's just impossible. To that back. So um, we had all of these things working against us. That, that was part of the reason I was motivated to really bring on an investor and get myself out of this rut. But uh, again, ultimately we figured a lot of stuff out pre-Cowan and then when he came along I was really ready to do something different. And I had to give up 75% of my business in order to get his money, which sounds ridiculous, but it seemed to me 25% of a multi-million dollar business was better than what I was facing, which was, you know, it was hand to mouth all the time, even though we had a good life. <clears throat> But it was not good business, not a bit. Um, and my expectation was that Cowan could get us all out of that. Right. 1988, we opened Cowan Lobel. And uh, by 1991, we had an internal board of directors, by the way, a paid board of directors wow, per paid. Cowan. Wow. Yeah, it was big time, crazy. Uh, and, and at Cowan's insistence, I was asked to leave the company. Uh, for my 25%, I was paid a relatively small amount of money, considering sales were at three and a half million by that time. Wow. But there was still no profit. Mm -hmm. Without profit, you got nothing. So you How emotional was that to attention. be? To, for you to be asked, oh, to, I mean, you have your name on the company. And, I was a know. mess. Yeah, I was a mess. My self-esteem was destroyed. 
um, not only did he fi- did I get fired, but Vivian got fired. Right. And at a time when our kids are 18 months apart, both went to prestigious colleges. Son Josh, Cornell Architecture, son Mia, uh, uh, Wesleyan University. And uh, both turned out to be highly successful professionals on their own. But um, it was devastating. You know, I, I couldn't rub two nickels together. Mm. And um, so I was desperate to own another business. A friend of mine found a screen printing business in Saratoga. I won't bore you with those details, but that's the time that took me. I measured it I, just recently, and it amused me. 20 months to lose 20 years of accumulated wealth. Wow. 20 months. Made every, we, we, my friend and I fell emotionally in love with the concept of this company. It was a multi-million dollar company, had great clients like Polo Ralph Lauren, uh, Basketball Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame. But again, my arrogance prevented me from seeing that their finances were a mess. There's an interesting aspect there, the idea of falling in love with your business. And you can look at somebody who can kind of come from the outside or just give you business advice that seems dispassionate and kind of look down on that. Because I'm an emotional person like you are. Mm -hmm. I fall in love with something I get. I'm very passionate. And then when somebody kind of pours, it feels like they're pouring water on it. But you need those kind of people, like you mentioned your wife even, who can just kind of look at things with a critical, not a you know, cynical, but just a critical eye and say, well, does, this, does the left side of the ledger yeah. average out yeah. the right side or whatever? And You need an adult in the room. I was That's the there. expression, the adult in the room. <laughs> so. um, I, I, I would approach a problem and say, okay, what do we need to do to solve it? Um, sometimes the best thing to do is not do it. Right, right. Um, I, I had a hard time acknowledging interesting uh, failure or that something can't be done. Right. And I just forged ahead um, and didn't listen to people who I should have listened to. I can tell you now there were many people who had reasonable advice for me that I just ignored. Were they mentors? Arrogance. Or had you not given them that kind of I, role? No, I, I didn't recognize, at that time, didn't recognize the value of mentors. Something we talk a lot about, I could right? tell you today, there's nothing better than a good mentor. Nothing. And a good mentor-mentee experience is your responsibility, not the mentor. <coughs> so you got to remember that. I've served as mentor to a lot of people. But if you, as the mentee, don't take the initiative, the experience is not going to be nearly as good as if you, first, you know, you think, well, maybe I'm bothering this person. Well, if, if they, set themselves up as a mentor, they want to be bothered. Right. That's what they do. 
Well, there's a benefit for both. I mean, my daughter was mentored by, you uh, know, Megan Baker, probably from Baker yeah. Public Relations. And, you know, Megan just gave her a tremendous amount of time just, you know, encouraging a young, she was still a student at the mm -hmm. time. And then now my daughter's actually working for her. It wasn't, that wasn't necessarily the plan. It was just over that, building that relationship as you talk about. But it's like the idea that I think when I talk to people about getting a mentor, most mentors I know, like you as well, is they want to feel like um, you don't have to take everything they say, but if you're just going through the motions of I'm right. getting, I'm picking his brain, but I'm never going to use yeah. it, they don't want to wait. They don't have time to waste. But if, but you know, it doesn't mean you have to take everything he says either. You know, you may say I wouldn't go into that, and you go, well, you, that just forces you to go and look and make sure that you crossed all your I, crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's. I always get that one mixed up. But uh, but they don't want to just feel like, uh, if you're just going through the motions to hear me talk, I have other things I yeah, can do. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you could tell, you could tell pretty quickly. So forget about the, the screen printing business. We, I literally lost every nickel that I ever had in, in that bankruptcy. It was a personal bankruptcy and it was just probably the worst time in my life. Um, and the one thing that saved me, though, all along, I, I've been, in every business that I've been involved with, I've been philanthropic. I've always looked to, how can we be helpful to the community that is helping us with our success. How do you become a good corporate citizen? And especially with the companies that I controlled. So I never turned down an ask. When I was in the food business, I catered many parties pro bono uh, to help organizations like the Albany Symphony and other organizations like that. Wherever I could, even in the t-shirt business, I, I contributed uh, T-shirts to uh, SPAC for an event. I always tried to find a way. Um, anyway, after this mega failure, uh, the thing that saved my life there was the fact that I was philanthropic. I served on numerous boards. Um, that interested me. Now, that, that's another thing. I always believe very strongly you need to give back to the community. But you gotta do it because you care, not to gain some business objective. Uh, it's just part of what you do as a business person in a community. Um, but people could easily see through phoniness. So I was on these boards and I did real work and it was very gratifying, but I also got to meet incredible people. And essentially, over time, uh, worked myself into uh, a peer relationship with people far wealthier than me and business and community leaders and it all just worked out. And that became so. And, that, and from that, you started a business. 
Well, uh, in a way, yes. So the the first benefit of it was um, I I was padlocked out of our factory. We had a little factory in an old classroom, class uh, school building in uh, Wilton, and we were literally padlocked out of it. And that was it for the screen printing business. It was terrible. 18 people lost their jobs who could afford it less than me, and it was just awful. Um, On the other side, I had to survive. So uh, the day after we were padlocked out of that factory, I was going to a fundraising event at the University of Albany, art gallery. Uh, I'm an alum. And I knew the president because of things that I had contributed to the alumni. And uh, went early, cornered the president. It it takes balls, I know. Takes guts. And uh, so I, I cornered him and spilled my guts. I told him everything. And then I asked for a job. And the job that I asked for, which I had vaguely researched, was director of marketing of the university. And the reason I chose that was because, uh, from my perspective as an alum and a business person, in those days, this was pre-nanotechnology, this was pre-everything you see going on at the campus. It seemed to me that the university needed a liaison between the university. I I was among the boards that I served on was the University at Albany Foundation, which is a very prestigious, as you know, board of directors. So you got the job. So I got, I, I created this job. Three weeks later was installed with my own office a very good salary and state benefits. Now I want to cut to the chase and a couple of things because we're running out of time. But I want to, so first of all, just the idea of relationships. Every relationship matters. It's not just about what you can get out of it because I don't think when you built these relationships you were thinking about that. But then when the, your time and Eve came, then you said, well, I'm going to tell, lay it out on the line and share with Absolutely. You. But, what I want to, so, and then I, because I know there's probably a couple questions here as well, right. knowing these guys. Um, you eventually, I want to talk a little bit about Anchor Agency because he, he's in insurance. He was in insurance. Yeah. Steve is. But you don't always think about insurance and entrepreneurship. Those things don't always tend to go insurance, hand in Insurance, on a scale of 1 to 10, would have been a minus 10 for me. And yet, you carved out a niche that made Steve very unique exactly. in the area, the differentiator we talked about at the very beginning of this class, that he actually helped startups, correct, um, with their insurance needs. Probably, um, they weren't probably paying you what you really needed, but the idea that when they became something significant, not all of them did, but when those that did hit it out of the park, there was loyalty, there was that relationship. I, while Talk I was at the that. university, I got a chance to see what was going on in emerging technology. And I'll, I'll, 
make it as clear as can be with just one client. My first client, my first technology client was a guy by the name of Frank Poor. Frank, I, I met as he was an MBA student and I hired Frank and his team to build an e-commerce website for the Alumni Association, which I, I went from director of marketing and then they sort of didn't, I was very successful in that, but they really didn't know what to do with me and there was no budget line. Then they, uh, then I ended up as executive director of the Alumni Association. Then I did that for a couple of years and along came my real only mentor, Marvin Friedman, who owned this insurance company, selling commercial and property and casualty insurance. Scale of one to 10, minus 10, but it occurred to me, and I was a little more mature, that all my skills related to success in that. But I went after the startups rather than people who already had the relationships. Frank needed somebody because he was starting his company called Commerce Hub. Now that was over 20 years ago. Commerce Hub sold two one, years ago? Yep, for $1.1 billion. $1.1 billion. And my You'll joke- You'll see it on I-90 as you're driving you uh, can't miss east it. toward Buffalo. They were my Boston. client for 20 years until the last iteration of that sale. Because Frank didn't, remember, didn't forget. Not a bit. Early on, they never forget he, those. And to Never the idea, forgot. think about insurance is one of those things where if you're an established company, that's, you know, that's maybe where the bigger bucks are. However, they already have a relationship with somebody. So you have to displace somebody. Startup, they don't even know what they don't know. Exactly. I want to get to some questions. I'm sorry. Is that okay? Any uh, questions? You guys have heard a lot of things. Yes, insurance. Dan. So I need his insurance for business. Oh, everybody in business needs insurance at yeah, multiple. Exactly. Some is statutory, like workers' comp, New York State DBL. Some is just commercial, property casualty, liability. Yeah, that's what I told you. Yeah. Now, the other thing I'll tell you is I've become an angel investor thanks to my success in the insurance business and never expected this. So it was a thing I least liked least doing business that I was the most skilled at. I got one question over here and then we're gonna to have to wrap it. Okay. So if you start your business, you, know, you have like a specific vision for the business, but you don't necessarily have the capital to like secure the proper location or the safety to build that vision. Yes. Would you wait for the opportunity to get that bigger space and do it the way you see it? Or would you, do you believe in like starting smaller and trying to scale up? I would start with what is manageable and meets your skill sets and gives you some comfort that you can accomplish it and then build the team. You know, there's always gonna be an opportunity. That's what, you know, all of us think, oh, if I don't do it now, Very I'm good. never gonna be able to do it. Very good. Untrue, 
untrue. You get that you urgent always, feeling. Always, yeah. You know, it's like compulsive buying. You know, I gotta have it, gotta have it. Then you buy it and you never use it, right? Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah, whenever I see a sale, I tell my guy, it's on sale right now. She goes, the next holiday, it's gonna be on that same exactly. sale price. So, it, guys, please give it up for Mr. LaBelle, Steve LaBelle. Thank you.